0: The American military had, up until the Trump administration, been slowly becoming more fair and egalitarian in who it allowed to join and move up its ranks. Women were allowed to fight in combat, gays were allowed to serve openly, then trans men and women. And for the most part, each new barrier breached was hailed as some kind of civil rights victory. Even lefty publications like Mother Jones consistently defended the right of women soldiers to fight on the front lines, or excoriated Trump for banning trans soldiers, often without pausing for a moment to express ambivalence about the actions or the values of the U.S. military. It's a bit like we don't believe we'll have true gender equality in this world until it's a woman who starts the global nuclear holocaust. It's a tricky issue. On one hand, we want a fair and open world for all. On the other, we would hope that a person suffering through the American system would not then choose to go ahead and cause the suffering of others through that same system. We would hope that there would be some understanding that a fair and open world does not have a place in it for the U.S. military. Someone who has been consistently clear-sighted on this issue is Matilda Bernstein Sycamore, the author of books like so many ways to sleep badly, and the end of San Francisco. We spoke over Skype. So about a year ago, uh, you wrote this uh, piece called Transgender Troops Should Be an Oxymoron. Um, For Truth Out, I thought it was wonderful. And um, as it happens, this issue is in the news again. And it feels like the rhetoric around this issue has somehow um, devolved even even further from where it was a year ago. That there's such an emphasis on cheering on um, transgender troops. In the military, without any sort of conversation about what the military is or what it does, um, and I was I was about to you know explain your own piece to you, but um, I realize that's obnoxious. So why don't you um, why don't you explain your position to me?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I mean I think you're right on the mark because um, I wrote that piece about a year ago, and that was when under Obama, the Pentagon announced the lifting of the ban on trans people openly serving in the U.S. military, right? And that was hailed as this major victory for civil rights, you know, for trans rights. And to me, it's harder to imagine anything further from the truth, right? Because allowing trans people to openly serve in the U.S. military only furthers the violence of one of the central institutions of global oppression right if we look at what institution in the world is causing the most havoc you know the most murder the most oppression you know we couldn't find anything more fitting than the u.s. military right which is currently uh... bombing afghanistan pakistan Uh, Syria, Iraq, Somalia, Yemen, and who knows how many other countries secretly, right? And also supporting despotic regimes around the world, you know, for decades. Um, And so when people cheer on trans inclusion in that central institution of global oppression, you know, it's haunting to me. And, and I think in this, you know, ensuing year, now there's a new conversation because Trump has announced that he's not going to allow, you know, trans people to serve. And and now, you know, we have uh, like the militaristic fervor of the so-called LGBT movement, Um, You know, like, for example, there's this statistic that's been, like, pushed around, you know, which people say the U.S. military is the largest employer of trans people in the United States, right? It's providing opportunities for trans people to escape poverty and, you know, uh, places where they couldn't express themselves. And finally, now, you know, they can join the U.S. military and, you know, obliterate a town in Somalia where they never knew anyone. Isn't this an amazing possibility? And even on, in left media, you know, I, I watch Democracy Now! Re- regularly, and that is my, my main news source, and I really appreciate um, their analysis, particularly of the U.S. military. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> and just like last week, I mean, literally, their opening segment, it was one of the m- most horrifying things I've ever seen in my life. Um, It was an interview with a woman who is described as the first out trans infantry person, right? And so let's think about that. Infantry, right? Infantry are the troops that are on the front line, literally gunning people down. They're not even pressing buttons in Nevada to Mm -hmm. obliterate, you know, a village in Pakistan. They're on the front lines. And Mm -hmm. this woman, you know, is on Democracy Now! telling us she's served three tours of duty in afghanistan and all she has to say about that is that she loves her country and she just wants to be able to continue to serve and democracy now which is a program that centers around an anti-war analysis that has been central to their mission for their entire existence they do not even ask her a thing you know, and she, she just says, oh, I love the camaraderie in the military. I just want to make a difference. And what kind of difference is she making in going to Afghanistan and killing people for, you know, in the service of global empire? And mm. I think it's, to me, so what's, I think what's so horrifying is the ways in which the left is complicit in. Structural transphobia, um, in the sense that they they think that they're doing a good thing because they've never integrated a queer or trans analysis into their broader way of thinking about the world. So obviously, Democracy Now or any left program or even liberal program, like if they're thinking about. War and they're against war. Shouldn't they be having anti-war people talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, it's it's just to me this kind of regressive tokenism that happens on the left, where over and over again the most conservative, trans, gay, lesbian, and queer voices are featured. Um, that are completely contradictory to what the whole left allegedly stands for. And I think that when I say structural homophobia and transphobia, what I mean is that these individuals who are organizing these programs, they, you know, they in their personal lives, they might love gay people and trans people. They might have sure. wonderful relationships with gay and trans people. They might not at all, also. <laughs> <laughs> but... But regardless of what their personal opinions are, they have never integrated a queer or trans analysis into their ways of thinking about the world. And queer and trans voices have been kept out of the left forever. It's only in the last, especially radical voices, you know, it's only in the last, Decade that any radical queer or trans voices have been featured on the left. And still, you know, it's over and over again the most, con- you know, I, I accept those people on rare occasions, uh, myself included occasionally. Um, it, it, it's over and over again. And I think, and the other part of that picture, right, is that the so called LGBT movement is always positioning the most conservative issues as the central goals of so-called lgbt struggle
0: right i mean it seems like um on the left with this sort of most recent push for civil rights um the they've abandoned any sort of structural criticism for the language of inclusion right so instead of and i don't know if i'm imagining a uh, a a romantic view of what the left used to be like, and sort of exaggerating the radical edge of it, or if it was just sort of always this way. But it does seem like we've we've squeezed out any sort of space for um, structural critiques of these institutions, from the military to marriage to everything else, that were that that people are now just fighting for inclusion into these institutions rather than the eradication or um, abolishment. Um, So that that's the new goal is just everybody gets to join in these institutions rather than we need to break these fucking things apart.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I agree entirely. And I think but I think actually, you know, the left has a really great analysis overall of the U.S. military and the violence that it enacts on a daily basis. Right. But then they're unable or unwilling to integrate that analysis when they're talking about queer or trans people or women serving in the military, that also also there they're, right. they're like slightly more critical, right? When that was announced, you know, women can be, you know, in uh, open combat. You know, hooray! <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, women are equal! Hooray! <laughs> um, and but but I think with. You know, starting with, you know, gays in the military, right, that was the first one in the early 90s, and now with, with trans inclusion in the U.S. military, it's because they never have covered queer and trans issues. They're like, oh, look, a queer and trans issue. Let's do it. Hello, this is so great. We're really supporting people. And, they, you know, it's a self-congratulatory uh, fervor of the liberal rhetoric of inclusion right, right. it's like you know we 'll we'll let you in, but we 're not going to actually like change the way we think you know and integrate it into it. There are plenty of queer and trans people who uh, you know have the same radical structural analysis of dominant institutions of power, but they are not the ones that are featured and I, and, and I think also right, this is part and parcel of this corporatized so-called LGBT movement that is only interested in, you know, the, uh, you know, what helps the people with the most power and privilege. And Mm so, as you mentioned, you know, that started in many ways with the fight for gay marriage. You know, marriage, like, and the way that was trumpeted is like, marriage provides you know, all these amazing resources, you know. And it's like, well, wait a second. (laughs) (laughs) Did you forget about generations of feminist analysis of the ways in which marriage is a dominant institution of oppression against women, queer, trans people, children, you know, and almost everyone else. And, you know, when they're like, oh, wait, but no, marriage, that's going to get us tax breaks and inheritance rights, right? So who benefits? from tax breaks and inheritance rights, not trans people are on the street, not homeless queer youth, not the people who are the most marginalized, but you know, people like David Geffen or Rosie O'Donnell or you know, whoever's in the top tier of the gay establishment at the moment, right? That's what matters to them. They need to, because they're gonna save millions, millions, right? <laughs> and so these people, most of whom were closeted their entire careers, you know, suddenly, that's how they made their money, you know, suddenly, they're the ones that determine the movement. And I think there is such a desire for, I think, you know, based in structural oppression as, as kids, you know, many of the people who run these institutions as children, you know, they were well aware of structural oppression
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and they still have such a desire for inclusion in these dominant institutions of oppression instead of, you know, fundamentally changing them that when some celebrity some straight celebrity especially says oh you know I like gay people I like trans people they're like hooray oh my god we've won this is the most amazing thing that's ever happened you know and and I think the left right has swallowed this whole picture you know and I think like marriage let's talk about marriage you know like how many of these left radio uh, talk show hosts you know writers who are of a certain age, let's say in their, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s even, how many of them have never gotten married? A lot! Do you think that's just a coincidence? (laughs) 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 No, it's because they realize that marriage is an essential institution of oppression, but then they can't apply that, you know, to the issue of gay inclusion in this institution because they're unable to think about, you know, queer critiques, of that institution, you know, and, and also because they swallow this whole picture where there are these gay institutions that now have a certain amount of power and influence who are pushing this issue, push it, push it, push it, push it, you know, institutions like the human rights campaign or the task force. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, oh, this is, mu- this must be what everyone cares about, you know? And it's, I mean, it really does haunt me. And I think this trans like, the the issue of trans people in the military, that one just, like, jumped out of nowhere. And, I mean, I can tell you exactly where it came from. It came from Jennifer Pritzker, who is, you know, one of the heiresses to the Pritzker family fortune. And, and the Pritzkers, as many people will know, you know, are... are um, you know, they built their fortune on real estate speculation, insider trainings, trading. Mm-hmm. Some people would say they were a central cause of the financial crisis of 2008, um, 2007, 2008, you know, that financial crisis in particular. Mm-hmm. That's where they made all their, for- their money. While everyone else was getting tanked, they were like, hello, billions, billions, billions. <laughs> so Jennifer Britsker, um, who is a trans woman, is described as the first trans billionaire. And who made her, she was, you know, a career military officer. So keep in mind, Mm -hmm. this is not someone who joined the military because she was trying to get out of a horrible town. You know, she was desperate to get away, you know, from, you know, who would never have any chance to, you know, have a job otherwise. Mm -hmm. Who was like, I need to find, this is someone who decided, what can I do? I'm a billionaire. I know I'm going to be a billionaire as soon as, whatever she gets her inheritance, right? She's like, Uh, Um, let's see. Oh, I know. I want to be a career military officer. This is, of course, when she was closeted. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, so in 2013, she, um, gave $1.35 million, I believe, to the Palm Center, which is a think tank. And they created this thing called the Transgender Military Service Initiative. And then suddenly this issue that I don't remember anyone talking about. This, this is just four years ago, right? I don't, right. like, no one was talking about that. Suddenly, all of a sudden, this is on mainstream headlines. And so that's this just so obvious way in which, you know, someone, I, like, how many trans billionaires are there? You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's like, you know, suddenly, but this is the issue, because she's like, oh, yeah, I, I think this is really important, you know, and there's the money. And then suddenly it becomes, you know, a mainstream media issue. Uh, and I, I was just thinking, actually, right before we were talking,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, there's a statistic that's been circulated just now. Suddenly we have this statistic, people are like, Yeah, the trans I mean the military is the largest employer of trans people. So I was looking at that study where they're getting that statistic where they say there are fifteen thousand trans people in the US military. So they didn't interview any people in the US military. This is just a study based on demographics. They're just guessing. It's a it's just a complete guess. They're like, Okay, there are one point three million uh people on active duty in the u.s. military and here's how many people are trans here's how many people are trans who have in the past served in the military keep in mind none of these people zero were out as trans when they served in the military. They were in the military because they were trying to escape their trans identity. Right. So, but anyway, those are the, somehow they're like okay, this is the largest employer of trans people. You know, again, none of, very few. Now there is a few trans people who are out be, after the Obama's decree one year ago. Not very many. You know, but like, but some, and we have no idea how many, right? But like, suddenly they say. Um, okay, this is the largest employer, and everyone just swallows it. They're just throwing it around, and I was thinking, well, how many people are in prison in the U.S.? Right? Let's—I think it's about two point three million, and it's constantly rising. So by now, it might be two point five million. I don't know, but like, mm-hmm. but we think about well, we know that trans people are overrepresented in the prison system. You know, just like. Black, Latino, and Native people, and mm-hmm. especially trans women, and particularly trans women of color. So if there are two point, if this is just a study based on demographics, and there are at least a million more people in prison than are active duty in the U.S. military, it, to me it seems like probably there are more trans people who are employed in prison than are employed in the U.S. military. And right. what if the LGBT movement was about getting people out of prison rather than getting people into the military and to me that's just obvious you know that's obviously what it should be about and if we're going to talk about the military at all, if there are these 15,000 trans people in the military and we know the military is a dominant institution of global oppression we know these people are going to be responsible for killing other people for no reason Shouldn't our question be, how do we get them out of the military? Not, how do we support them in the military?
0: Right, and I think it's just so, it's so craven how ideas of sensitivity then cloak these sort of corporate interests. How this sort of, um, not in the the sense of um, political correctness gone mad or anything, but just in the way of, um, how there becomes a dominant uh, way of speaking about these issues, which is passed down from these people, you know, billionaires and think tanks and, and so on that, are, that have their own agendas um, and then everyone just starts parroting them um, on social media or in the news or something of, of uh, sensitivity and support and inclusion um, and it doesn't sort of By by sort of repeating that these these um, you know um, talking points basically is what they are, then we're not getting at the real issues or looking at anybody's um, motivations for putting forth these issues at this particular time. Absolutely, and I think that's really dangerous, or not dangerous, but um, manipulative um, to hijack. And, and I guess it happens all the time. Certainly, it's happened with feminism um, for decades um, to hijack a sort of civil rights movement um, with corporate interests and then um, refuse um, the ability to criticize in any way through this idea of, well, we have to be sensitive and we have to be um, uh, tolerant. I hate the word tolerant more than I think any other word, you know?
1: Yeah, definitely. Mm hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, I, oh, go ahead.
0: Oh, no, that was
1: you. <laughs> no, I'm ready. Keep going, keep going. I've been talking um, a lot, so feel free to say more.
0: No, I, I love it. Um, no, it's just this, um, how do we push past the language? I mean, I know that I've been watching you do it on social media, and I'm very, um, I admire the way that you do it. I always sort of um, uh, hang back on social media with these particular issues because it just feels like a, um, a snake pit, but I see you doing it in this very sort of clear, um, and forthright way. And I'm a little, I'm a little envious of your ability. Um,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um,
0: so how do you, how do you manage that to, to push past, um, the sort of accepted language or the accepted, uh, viewpoint on these issues?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it's about always articulating what actually matters, and not capitulating to the terms that are given to us and actually I'll give you an example Go back, going back to the trans military ban a mm-hmm. really close friend of mine called me on that day and um, who was trans and recent, recently transitioned and, um, and he said oh I'm feeling so sad today because of this military ban and how much it's going to impact trans people mm-hmm. and And for me, when I heard about the military ban, I was like, hooray, let's celebrate. I mean, if we had an actual movement, we would all be in the streets celebrating. We would be saying, thank you, get trans people out of the military. Now, who's next? Get everyone out of the military, (laughs) second step. And then the third step is end the military, right? I mean, in this country, you know, just to review for, I'm sure everyone is aware of this, but just to remember, you know, because we were talking about the military as a global institution of oppression, but let's talk about the the U.S. military in the United States. If we even just cut the U.S. military budget in half, we would have everything we've ever dreamed of in this country. Everything we are told is impossible is only impossible because of all of the money that goes to the U.S. military. Mm -hmm. And, And so I think... And so I said to my friends, well, wait, but you, you hate the U.S. military, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think this is great, and you know, I, I mean, I'm not going to deny that some people are impacted by it, and you know, and think, and that it will, you know, it, that there is some ways in which, you know, transphobia is furthered by that, but... Like, what if we were all celebrating on the streets, right? Then trans people would be like, oh, wait, I'm supposed to be celebrating. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think for me, it's that, you know, we have to stay true to our ideals and not because I feel like this happens a lot, actually, with the few people who, you know, radical queer people who are you know, critical and are allowed into media circles from time to time. I do hear a lot where people will say, well, you do have a good point, but, right? Mm -hmm. For me, if they don't have a good point, I'm definitely not going to say they don't have a good point, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I'm not going to (laughs) say, like, like, because then what happens is that the critique gets erased. And I saw this a lot with marriage. I mean, marriage, almost no critique was ever allowed. But there are some people who are very who have, have very nuanced critiques, you know, of gay marriage, and occasionally were allowed into media circles. And these mm-hmm. people, they understand marriage way better than their opponents, which in that case were always, you know, foaming at the mouth, Christian right, homophobes, right? Mm-hmm. They never would have a conversation between a queer person opposed to marriage and a queer person who's in favor of marriage, only foaming at the mouth homophobes and then, you know, usually just gay marriage supporters, but then occasionally, right, there would be something else, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you, and those people sometimes, they knew so much about marriage, domestic partnership, you know, all the different levels. They start talking about all these different things and then they sound like they're actually proponents of marriage, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think to me, it's like not capitulating the terms. And, and I also think not allowing yeah, that, the rhetoric that we have to be um, sort of like, you know, subservient to a dominant narrative in order to articulate anything else, Mm -hmm. you know, so, you, you know, like, you and I are both writers, and we know that as writers, we're always, especially people who are not at what is supposed to be the center, right? So the center, you know, it's straight white male. You know, sometimes straight white women are allowed into that. You know, this idea of this middle America, this like middle class white picket fence life, or maybe like you know, uh, an Ivy League, you know, pedigree, like you know, New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these are like everything has to be written for those people, right? Nothing right. else. There's no one else. And so we're always told we have to talk to this center. That's the center, right? It's like white, Christian, middle America, or maybe it's like, you know, the the elite, uh, the academic elite, right? So Mm -hmm. there's nothing else. And to me, as soon as we talk to that center, we've lost, there's no point in writing, might as well just give up. Like... We have to talk from our, I mean, we can talk to whomever we want, but we can't capitulate our, their, to their terms. You know, we have right. to, like, we don't have to explicate. You know, I feel like everything, we're always, I know I, in my work, have always, you know, told, like, oh, you know, you have to explain, like, how, do you, how did you get to this place? And I'm like, I don't, I'm not explaining. This is my life. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I
1: actually think writing, you know, is so much more interesting when people are actually writing on their own terms you know that's where and to use the language that's always told it's so much more accessible. We're told the opposite, right? That like, mm-hmm. in order for something to be accessible, you know, if you are, you know, like to take myself, for example, you know, if you, you've been a hooker, you're, you're queer or trans or whatever, you have to like explain, like, how did I get to this deep, dark, degraded, desperate, terrible place, you know? <laughs> and then, and then I have to talk about it and, you know, in detail and, you know, and, and let people know how this is and isn't different from your life. And then at the end, you know, you rise from the to a new transformative place and how do you
0: get married and that's and that's the yeah the, exactly I yes. I've been, I've been
1: yeah. waiting I mean I'm ready <laughs> at least for the diamonds I mean if nothing else for the diamonds um, preferably blood-drenched South Africa diamonds because everyone knows they're the prettiest pink diamonds they're the best. right they're the best <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I think for me, it's about not capitulating to the terms and, uh, and I mean, obviously this is going to make you marginalized. I mean, there's no question, but for me, like, I'd rather be marginalized than, you know, suffocating in my own saliva, you know, like while trying to articulate like, or and participating in my own demise <laughs> <laughs> and the demise of everyone like me and, and, who has far less access, you know? And like, yeah, it really does horrify me.
0: Yeah, I found when uh, doing interviews for the Feminist Manifesto um, that my ideological enemy wasn't so much the um, the sort of um, mouth-breathing misogynist. It was the sort of uh, middle-aged, property-owning, married, white women of the world um that I just I just couldn't even have a conversation with you know that it was there was no point their eyes would just glaze over (laughs) Um, (laughs) it it wasn't there was no I was just wasting all of my sort of energy and breath trying to trying to um get my reality across to them it was it was Mm -hmm, a sort of interesting mm -hmm. observation Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. so and because my framework in a lot of these conversations is coming out of feminism, um, you know, I I've seen within the feminist movement a kind of um uh this my generation particularly, but also uh, some of the younger um feminists a desire to distance themselves or even to erase the more radical parts of their history. Um, is that happening within the queer community as well? Like this kind of, um, uh, this? oh, well, the, you know, these people took it too far, but don't worry, I'm, I'm much more sort of, um, I'm going to present myself as, as centrist and conforming and um, you know, heteronormative even if I'm um, identified as queer.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, gay liberation in the 1960s and 1970s, you know, emerged, um, you know, as a rejection of dominant norms, right? And A rejection of militarism, a rejection of imperialism, a rejection of heteronormativity, you know, rejection of marriage, a rejection of of, uh, the nuclear family. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the idea was to reject it all and create something else on our own terms. And you know there have always been there's always been a tension you know within queer worlds between you know a radical anti assimilationist analysis and an assimilationist analysis which you know says oh we just want access to dominant institutions of power and I think Mm -hmm. what changed you know in the early '90s is that uh, because in the in the past most of the people who had the assimilationist analysis were basically closeted. <laughs> 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 and literally and you know, you know they couldn't because they couldn't have they couldn't be wealthy and be out. That just was not a possibility, mm-hmm. you know, for the most part. I mean unless it was inherited, you know, money. But um mm-hmm. and what changed, you know, in the early 90s, you know, is that act, that that side of the picture suddenly had all the power and was able to be out, you know. And I mean, I'm just using the early. I, I mean, I think that's the end point of it. You know, that was the moment, and that's the moment where marriage, you know, became central, and gays in the military, you know, that those are both early 90s is when they became the dominant issues, you know, of the gay mainstream. And I think since then, you know more marginal voices are always pushed to the side. I mean, always, you know, and even when it's framed as including someone else, it still has to be on the dominant terms. And I think actually, you know, sometimes I think that gay establishment Is worse than the straight establishment in many ways because it's so busy trying to be the straight establishment. The straight establishment doesn't have to try, (laughs) 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 so they can actually just be like, "Oh, wait, that's an interesting point you just said about marriage." You know, "Oh, that's interesting. I never thought about it that way." You know, but gay marriage advocates, I mean, they no, no, and no. I mean, if they're really like foaming at the mouth loyalists to that cause, right? They are not. You know, nothing. You know, and, and they, they, but I think the other thing that happens, and has happened more recently, is where some of a more radical analysis gets filtered in. But still, in the same serv- in the service of those same issues, you know, and and I and I think even in queer non normative worlds, you know, queer wor- queer worlds where people say like, you know, I don't want to, I'm not just ready to, you know, I'm not, I'm not swallowing this we're just like you kind of mentality, right? Mm-hmm. And even in those worlds, I find actually since the legalization of gay marriage, um, queer people, you know, who have lived really like you know, at least socially, very uh, consciously, you know, a a consciously non-normative life, you know, saying, well, Mm -hmm. I want to be able to get married and be respected for that choice within these queer non-normative worlds. And it's like, well, wait a Mm -hmm. second. The whole world respects that choice. (laughs) (laughs) The whole fucking world. Do you really need this tiny segment of the population (laughs) that is uh, built on not swallowing that package to say, oh, I'm so glad you just got married. Absolutely not. You know, I refuse to ever say to someone, I'm so glad you just got married. I mean, I've started (laughs) to get, like, occasionally I'll get, like, an invitation for a wedding, and I'm like, this person (laughs) clearly, I mean, they have no, no... Do not invite me to a fucking wedding. You can call me up and say, I'm doing this horrible thing. I know you're not going to come, but I just wanted to let you know. That's fine. Mm. No problem. Like, I get it. Or like, oh, I'm getting married so I can have health care. Go for it. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> Absolutely. We all need health care. I'm getting married yeah. so I can stay in this country and leave if I want to. Absolutely. Do it. Do not celebrate that. Do not describe that as progress.
0: Right. Yeah, um, I wrote this piece um, about how radical politics require living radical lives. But it it feels like on the left in the counterculture, that's becoming less and less um, um, favorable or even an option, particularly, you know, again, within feminism. Um, Yeah, all the feminists got married, too. Um, all of them. There, there's so few uh, abolished marriage feminists left in the world. I, I think just me and my friend Jessica, I think that we're the only ones that I, that I know of at, the, at this particular point in time. Um, but yeah, you know, I feel like so much of the left now is just um, people on Twitter making Trump jokes and sort of living these kind of, um, you know, suburban existences um, and, and sort of not realizing that... A societal transformation doesn't happen if you don't change the way you participate in society and the way that you're um, positioned against it. Um, it's such an unpopular position to take, I think.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, everything I've learned from my politics, it all comes from feminism. And so for me, though, the feminism that I learned was the feminism of, of challenging power not mm-hmm. accessing power right and right. so it was about abolishing hierarchy not becoming part of the hierarchy and and i think the i mean the wrong side in so many of these conversations is the side that has one and then people try to create faith within that. So people will say, well, we're changing marriage. Both parents, you know, they're both doing childcare. How long have we heard that? (laughs) Stupid crap. You know, we're changing marriage because, like, we're not uh, monogamous. Oh, my God, Mm -hmm. it's changed. You know, like, well, no, what we need to do is we need everyone needs to have these benefits that are sometimes accrued only through marriage, right? Housing, mm-hmm. health care, the right to stay in this country or leave if you want to, you know, even inheritance rights, if you need that, everyone should be able hospital visitation rights, everyone mm-hmm. should be able to say, I want my, these are the people I want to come, you know, it should not be based on this outdated, tacky, oppressive institution. And mm-hmm. I think, but I think, unfortunately, I mean, part of I think what you're pointing to is that people are not willing to commit to like actual opposition for the long term because of the social marginalization, right? And and I think um, I think yeah, and I think in a way that, that is the tragedy. And I think you know I've thought a lot about in the about belonging you know, and the ways in which belonging is what we're always supposed to want, right? We want, we need mm-hmm. to belong. But the costs of belonging are always so high. And I think maybe what we need to be talking about more is about how not to belong, you know, mm-hmm. how to, and how to, you know, abolish, the terms of inclusion to anything, whether it's subculture, whether it's dominant culture, you know, uh, whether it's what's considered, you know, high status or what is considered low status, they always or almost always are terms for inclusion and they mm. almost always are oppressing people more than they're allowing for, you know, a transformative analysis or a transformative way of living.
0: Mm right it seems like when we talk about community the act of community is as much about exclusion as inclusion um and that part of it seems to be left out of the conversation as a whole um you know even even within sort of uh, community in the sense of like a neighborhood in a, in a city um but um yeah um i mean i could i could go on about that for a long time but um you know, going back to this idea of um, accepting your own marginalization or, or sort of like being in opposition to the culture, you know, I, I, I wrote a bit about um, William James's idea of the unbribed soul about um, uh, the idea of choosing financial insecurity within a capitalistic society as a way of um saving your spiritual or your political self um, as a tactic to avoid uh, having to compromise your values through the work that you were doing, that if you um, accept a life of financial instability, then you sell yourself less you sell yourself out less. Um, and anyway, I was criticized um, for this piece because um, I was told by a couple different people that, somebody who's experienced um, poverty or financial hardship should be allowed to pursue wealth um, in their adult life uh, and not be criticized for it because they've already suffered so much. And I think that's a, there's a similar argument about um, both feminist and queer communities that um, that that's an argument for inclusion rather than marginalization, that uh, they've, our lives are hard enough so we should be allowed to um, join the military or get married or you know, whatever it is that we want to do because we deserve comfort because we've been marginalized. Um, and um, it's such a, um, I, I guess I take their point somewhat But who else than somebody who's marginalized to be able to see how sick the system is and to know that it's worth rejecting, you know? Um, Anyway, do you have thoughts?
1: (laughs) Sure. I mean, I think no one should have to choose financial insecurity in order to lead a life worth living. And I think what we need to be fighting for is... We live in a very wealthy country, (laughs) right? There's plenty of money to go around. And if things were allocated differently, to Mm -hmm. take, again, the example of the military, if we just cut the U.S. military budget in half, there would be plenty of money so that everyone would be guaranteed housing, health care, you know, food on the table, a place where they can live and not worry about getting kicked out of, and Mm. all of the basic needs, you know, a sex life that matters, the, you know, Mm. the ability to have time to, you know, do what you want to do, to stroll around and, you know, look at the sky and, you know, wonder about the possibility and impossibility of everything, (laughs) right? I mean, we should all have these opportunities and it shouldn't have to be based on choosing discomfort. I mean, in the, in the sense of, I mean, it should be about choosing discomfort in terms of how we're thinking, but
0: it Mm -hmm. shouldn't have
1: to be choosing like, Oh my God, how am I going to pay my rent? You know? And so I think that's, that's what we need to be fighting for. And, um, everyone should have those basic needs taken care of and it's quite easy for that i mean not easy politically but it, mm-hmm. it, with reallocation of resources it could easily take place you know and i think as long as we're not fighting for that you know and and also and also that you know accepting the terms um you know, like of say the quotation mark first trans billionaire, right? You know, like, <laughs> like her needs are never going to be the needs or desires of the rest of the people in the world. You know, mm-hmm. and I think, I, I guess another another thing I think that I see a lot, you know, is the ways in which identity becomes an endpoint. Rather than a starting point, right, and so right. I think that's a lot of what we're talking about is that is how is that you know that exact path, so the ways in which you know gays in the military or gay marriage, you know gay cops you know gay priests you know this is this is what matters. you just put gay on any oppressive institution, and suddenly it's the best thing, gay white supremacists, hooray, (laughs) finally, you know, it's like, oh, no, actually, we need to be challenging structural racism, not becoming white supremacists, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think to many people, that one would be quite obvious, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I would hope. But but it's, you know, unfortunately, it's so often... And, I mean, identity is a great starting point. I mean, I, I don't know where I would be without figuring out a lot of things that are based on identity. But we have right. to start there and use that to challenge dominant institutions of power. Otherwise, it's a dead end. Might as well just, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, the gay marriage, for example, it's, you know, it's like, well, wait, why don't you just go back in the closet? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> then you can have
1: straight marriage. It's even better. <laughs> <laughs> there have been gay people who've been in straight marriages for forever since so with marriage, right? So that to me seems like that would be the pinnacle of achievement, really, <laughs> would be straight marriage for gay people. Um.
0: um so yeah so we're out of time i think that's a that's a lovely idea to land on but um thank you so much for talking to me
1: thank you i really enjoyed it can't wait to listen Forever this has been a forever dog production executive produced by joe cilio alex ramsey and brett Boehm. for more podcasts please visit foreverdogproductions.com